Welcome to ASMR Get Out of the Wheel. Are you hoping to calm your mind, relax your body, or experience ASMR? Dr. Andrew Michaels is here to help you. Oh good, you're here. Hello. You have perfect timing. I just finished setting up a space for you in the archive room. Shall we? You should have everything you need here. You were given instructions. Do you have any questions? Yes. There are two incidents in our records that we're certain of. You have the first one ready to go here, and I will bring everything for the second incident when you're finished with the first. No, the policy is one file at a time. I, d I don't think you understand. This entire box is one file. Documents, pictures, slides, audio files. This one has some physical evidence too. A broken lantern and samples of ashes. You'll understand as you work your way through the file. Right. Some files are substantially larger as well. You're going to need to take detailed notes. Looking for similarities, patterns, anything else that comes up. Mm-hmm. And there is a third file, one that Dr. Andrew Michaels believes is related, but it hasn't been proven yet. There isn't a lot of documentation on that, as you likely know, but I'll bring up what we have. Hopefully you can make something of it for your report. That is what he's really looking for. Are you ready? Do you need anything before you begin? Okay. Good luck. and I'm here to tell you one of my private secret files of an adventure that happened very, very long time ago. The legend of the character Stretch Where did it begin? Somewhere in the small towns of Ohio, near where I lived. The local papers every once in a while. Back in the day, somewhere back in the early 20th century it started. Maybe it was 1902, maybe it was 1905. The stories are vague 
stories are clouded, lost in faded paper and faded memory. But in 1908, clearly written story in a local newspaper stated that a farmer had cornered a man in his barn. The man was nude, six foot nine, which was extremely tall for that time period. He had bristling, curly hair, bright orangish brown, a beard and a mustache. He was well groomed around his head and face, but his body was not. He was unkempt and smelled horribly, like he had not taken a bath in a very, very long time. The farmer thought the man was spying on his wife and daughters as they were trying to bathe on Saturday for Sunday church. He chased the man to his barn, cornering him with a hay pitchfork. Now, if you grew up around farms like I did, there's actually two kinds of pitchforks. At least, I think there is. There is a hay pitchfork, which is long, wiry bristles on it. And then there is a potato pitchfork that you stick in the ground and you almost like a shovel and you can pick up potatoes from it. When you turn the ground over under the potato plant, the potatoes pop up into the surface. In this case, it was the thin, wispy hay pitchfork the man had with thin, long, finger-like, pointed tines on the end of the tool. He cornered the man up against a post. His horses bucking in their stalls, kicking the walls. He turned for a second and the man bolted. The farmer, in his reaction to the man trying to run, and in the panic of the horses screaming, struck almost instinctively and hit the man under his ribs on the right side. The tines of the pitchfork penetrating his flesh and ripping him down the right side of his body. The man let out an unearthly howl and ran out the barn doors. The farmer pursued to no avail. The man escaped into the darkness of the evening and was never seen again. People would report from time to time old 
stretch, hiding in their homes. You could always smell him first. Smell him. He liked to hide around the cabins and the cottages near Beaver Creek State Park. Beaver Creek State Park is a wonderful little Ohio park with a rocky little trout stream that eventually pours into the Ohio River. The cottages and the cabins there are a quick little retreat from the cities nearby. People from Pittsburgh, Youngstown, and even Akron frequent the area. The trout farming is good. The cabins are clean and new. And recreational hiking is a must. But every once in a while, someone reports a sighting. Some strange macabre man hiding behind a tree, so tall and lanky-armed, he could put his hands all the way around a large, thick tree and cross his fingers in front of him and wiggle his thumbs. He doesn't talk, he just mumbles and makes funny sounds. And he can yelp and yelp in the full moon and dance, frighten you, if you get caught in the evening, hiking too late. And he follows you back along the path, always hiding in the crook and cracks of trees, blending in with the trunks. That's old Stretch. Is he real or just a figment of people's imaginations? I was on leave from the Department of Navy Special Services, and I brought my assistant with me. You might know her. She does the introductions to this very filed show that you listen to. She needed a break from the monotony of her job, and so did I. So. I talked her into bringing her family and mine to the cabins so we could show our children a good time, let them do a little trout fishing and hiking and backpacking along the wooded low hills of the Appalachian mountain chain. Her husband was a very accomplished musician and my children were very interested in music, so it was a good blending of the families. Though I don't like to associate with people I work with on a regular basis, I thought this was an occasion that merited it, because we had been through some very stressful times at work. Things were getting very rough. The cases coming across my desk were nothing less than spectacular. 
and one report after another having to be filed with the government agencies involved, all in triplicate, was taking its toll on my staff and my personal assistant most of all, tired of me barking out orders, tired of me dictating the day's agenda, tired of me being a terrible boss. I thought the least I could do is a four-day weekend and a getaway for our families. It was a short trip by plane from Chicago down to southern Ohio. The car ride was beautiful, the leaves changing in the fall. It was starting to get cold. We might even see some frost. Might even see an early Ohio snow. You never know about the weather in Ohio. And as we settled in to the cabins, we of course brought the wrong clothing for our trip there. It became a wild Indian summer. So late into November, it was was ridiculous. It was hot and humid. It felt like you were in a Florida or southern Georgia swamp. And that's Ohio for you. If you don't like the weather, just wait five minutes. It'll be different. So the kids would dress down and spray themselves with mosquito spray and run out and play tag. Everything was good. Hot dogs, cooked pork chops, hamburgers on the grill. We even ordered out from a local farmer and got some good steaks for one night. Everybody was getting along wonderfully, and I couldn't believe that uh, the women were constantly chatting and plotting out new adventures and new things for us to do. It made me happy to see everyone get along. It's one of those rare occasions where everybody was just happy to be somewhere else than where they wanted to be. Or where they were, I mean. I know I get lost in thought, too. I thought I caught something, as funny as it sounds, out of the corner of my eye. I've been around too many things in this world, too many unparalleled adventures. I've seen too many supernatural and otherworldly things. Your mind starts to slip. It does. This mind just sees what it wants to see. It sees patterns in nature. It sees faces and tiles. Trees resemble human beings with outstretched arms. Clouds look like teddy bears. You see eyes in your drink. Words spelled out in your soup. The mind plays tricks on you, and out of the corner 
of my eye in the mirror of the bathroom, I thought I saw someone looking back at me. At first, I almost made a Bloody Mary joke. I love doing that. And you're in my line of business. Bloody Mary is a parlor trick. Something to do for fun and laughs. Because you know the real world is much, much worse than anything Mary could possibly ever bring to the table. I looked again in the mirror and there was nothing there. Of course there was nothing there. My mind was playing tricks on me. And how could somebody be in here? I was alone in the home. I was alone in the bathroom. I was alone. Everybody was outside waiting for me. But as I get older, my bladder fails me, and I always want to make sure that I go before I leave so I don't have to when I'm out. It's one of the problems with growing old. Something in the back of my mind made me reach over as I stepped out of the bathroom into my bedroom to grab my coat and I ran my hand down my shoulder holsters. Yes, even on vacation I bring my weapons. And I slid my hand down my holster straps. And I thought about putting on my gun. Maybe just one. Maybe just, just one gun before I left. I could wear it under my coat. Nobody would see it. Nobody would even know. They, they're so used to me carrying it, they wouldn't even think about it. But I held back. That I'm on vacation. There's nothing wrong. and The cabin's secured, and I'm with my family. I closed the door back up. towards the wall and I left the room out of sight, out of mind I left the cabin and I locked it my wife and my assistant were both annoyed with me what's taking so long? I assured them everything was fine and we got inside the big 15 passenger van we rented and we all headed into town to do a little sightseeing and hit all the little antique stores and gift shops nearby. It was a fun evening. The kids even talked us into having a burger and a shake at a local Dairy Queen. And I have to admit, the food was great, but the talk, the conversation was priceless. We let the kids rule the day, and control the conversation. <laughs> and they had some grand, tall tales and stories to tell us. And that was okay. It's always okay. I love hearing what the kids have to say. You never know what they're going to say. That's the best part. And when the conversation slowly got along, the lines of flatulence and burping and every other bodily sound the kids could make. It was time to go back. 
I have to admit, by the time I got back to the cabin, I was saying, okay, that's enough. Okay, that's enough back there. We heard it all before, ten times before. If you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I was the first parent to crack. And of course, I was also the first person that needed to use the bathroom again. So I said, well, I gotta hurry up and get in the house because I have to go. So I uh, pulled up to the cabin and it was getting dusk. The sun was just falling. It gets dark awful early in Ohio, especially around these hills. It wasn't even quite five o'clock and it was already getting dark for November. Very dark, very cold. The Indian summer was starting to fade. Remember that thing about the weather? It can change so fast. Some of the family wanted to go down to the creek and go for a walk. They wanted to check out a covered bridge nearby. We all agreed, and those that wanted to go on the walk went. And three of us decided, adults, decided to stay behind. My assistant, her husband, and myself. One of the children decided to stay too. Not wanting to go on a long, long walk. They just weren't up to it. So four of us went into the cabin and the other four down to the covered bridge. I felt secure that my wife could take care of the kids. My older boys were definitely able to handle themselves and keep an eye on their mom and their little sister. And my assistant's kids were fitting right in like little ducklings and everyone following along. Everybody getting along. It was really a good moment. It was that magic moment, that magic hour in the evening when the sun hits everything just right before it starts to fade. And all the reds, oranges, and yellows of the evening just come to life. It's like a different world just for a few moments. You stop and you look around and you realize how beautiful everything is. And then you interrupt it by going inside and closing the door behind yourself. It's funny how we don't stop and enjoy those moments while they're still there. Part of me wishes I would have enjoyed it longer because what happened next was well it ruined the trip it ruined a lot of things I I went to the bathroom right away straight away right into the house unlocked it straight into the house straight to the bathroom and relieve myself. I know you need to know all of these details, but it's important. Where was I? What was I doing? And like a dummy, I ran in the house and I had my coat on, my jacket, and it got kind of caught on the door and I had to go and I'm trying to undo my pants and get myself there to go and and not used to the bathroom and I hit the door open and my coat kind of got caught on it, on the door handle and the door kind of didn't shut, so I just kind of hurried up and thought, well, I'll just go real quick before anybody comes in and sees me. So I start relieving myself, you know, like any 
man does. They don't care. They'll go anywhere. They'll pee on a tire. They'll pee on a tree. They don't care. They're worse than a dog. And I finished up and I'm thinking, I better get myself, you know, situated here before somebody sees me like this in this state. And I fixed my pants and I'm trying to get everything going and the door keeps hitting me in the back. I push the door and I feel the faintest resistance to my push. My instincts kicked in and I looked up and into the mirror. I thought I saw somebody in that mirror. There's somebody behind that door. I pushed the door back and felt that resistance again. Oh, this is on now. Whoever, whatever, you've had it. You do not know what you're doing. I pulled the door and slammed it shut. Whatever was behind that door was now trapped inside the bathroom with me, one-on-one. -on -one. Behind the door was a huge, tall, gangly, six-foot-nine, naked man. I must have jumped three feet backwards, tripped over the clothes hamper in the bathroom, and I fell directly onto my side on the edge of the bathtub. Picture this, a big man, my size, six foot four, and I'm a heavy man. I fell backwards, sideways, landed directly on the meat of my body below my rib cage and above my hip, around my abdomen section. I hit so hard it knocked the wind completely out of me. My foot kicked out and went right through the wicker clothes basket. My other arm flailed out and busted part of the sink. I actually cracked the sink with my hand. Oh, I thought I was dead. I couldn't breathe. All I could do was let out a gurgling moan, and I slumped down onto the floor in front of the tub. My ankle and my foot twisted in the hamper, and I landed on the part of the sink that I broke off under my leg. I thought I cut the back of my leg. It hurt so bad. I've been hurt in combat. I've been in car wrecks. I was thrown by several creatures of the night. I have never been hurt so badly as I was when I fell in that bathroom. I thought I was a dead man. Whatever it was staring at me was mumbling and making sounds, but not talking. I caught my breath, and what hit me first was the stench. It was like smelling salts. It stunk so bad. The ammonia, the odor of body stench, 
not dead, but rotten human flesh. He stood at a profile, squeezed into the corner of the door jamb. As huge and tall as he was, was his head almost touching the ceiling. It was like he was squeezed into the corner of the room. He had a look not like a smile and not like a laugh, not a scowl and not evil, just a weird, peculiar look like a little boy who got caught with his hand in the cookie jar. I rolled over and tried to yell, and I couldn't. All that would come out of my mouth was a moan, a groan, a grumble. I managed to get my hands underneath me. My hand had been cut from slamming into the sink so hard, and my hand slid across the top of the porcelain of the bathtub, leaving a streak of blood. I was hurt pretty good. I didn't have time to figure it all out. I just pulled my foot from the hamper. It spilled over on top of me. I must have made a hell of a racket because all of a sudden the bathroom door swung open. My assistant's husband standing there in front of me. Whatever it was behind the door literally disappeared behind it. I pointed up as I was trying to wrap my hand and said, behind the door. He had a panic look on his face. I must have looked like I'd been murdered. He slammed the door and said, Get out of the house. There's somebody in the house. It was really the right move for him to make. When he slammed the door shut, I was alone in the bathroom. Whatever it was, Whatever he was, he somehow got out through the crack between the door. He was out with my friends in the main house. I pushed myself forward and got on my knees and stood up, my hand wrapped in a dirty towel. I ripped the door open, stumbled out into the main room. Where did he go? They said, who? Where did he go? He was in there with me. Did he get past you? Where did he go? Right then I saw the creature. He was on the porch, leaping over the rail, heading towards the woods. This wasn't going to happen. He wasn't getting away with this. So instinctively, adrenaline pumping through my body, I ran out of the house. I heard a scream in the yard. My assistant's child stumbled back and fell away from the creature as it ran towards him. I couldn't tell if he hit the child or the child just stumbled back, but the child fell. My assistant screamed the most death-rattling yell I've ever heard. He was heading towards the creek, towards my wife and the children. 
I managed to grab a rake in the yard. A stupid yard rake. And chased after him, half using the rake handle as a cane. My leg hurt so bad. I couldn't tell if I broke my ankle or twisted it or what. But I had trouble following him. And he was fast and lithe on his feet, running through brambles, running through the grass and the gravel, running through sticks and thorns. I could barely keep up with him. I cut him off by following the path. His direct route towards the creek area was a long way around. I think he thought I couldn't see him. How I could see him, I don't know. I always had that thing about me where I could see or perceive things. It comes from seeing too much in the world. You can't shut it out. It's always there, right before your eyes. You can't look away and pretend you don't see it. It's like the first time you're in combat, you see the dead of the battle. It's unnatural. They're all twisted and they're all laying there quiet, peaceful. Some look like they were caught, like wax figures poured out of a mold. And some look like they're sleeping like babies. But every single face, every single eye looking back at you, you burn that into your brain your memory freezes every frame of that photograph. And it's always there before your eyes. And no matter where Stretch went to hide, no matter where he went to climb or slide under a pile of rocks, I could see him. I could see him. And those images burning into my brain, he could see me watching him, too. And he knew he was in trouble. He headed to the old covered bridge. I knew he was going there. Something told me that that was his exit, his way out of wherever this was for him, wherever this is for him. If he was ancient and old, as I thought he was, maybe the bridge is a portal for him him to it. I managed to get close to the bridge, my family on the other side. My wife and my boys ran through the bridge and grabbed me. I looked a mess. I said, get me over to the other side. Get the kids back. They took me through the bridge and I stood my ground on the far side. And then came Stretch. I told the children to get back. Stay back. Don't look. He slowly entered the covered bridge. He started to mumble and talk, and he seemed to get taller and thinner, almost turning two-dimensional out like a pancake, like a computer.
computer image, like a digital image, like a photograph, like not even real. No wonder he was nude. He couldn't wear clothes. He couldn't wear clothes. Clothes won't change shape. Clothes won't flatten out. Not like his body. Not like he is. Flattened out. Nude. Grotesque. Stretched out. Thinner and thinner. Trying to reach through the bridge. I could sense him telling me. Motioning me to move. His mouth getting wider and wider, his eyes getting bigger and bigger, stretching out to gigantic size. His body literally stretching and his face stretching till he was filling the mouth of the bridge, me being the only thing between him and escape. And I remembered the rake in my hands. And with all the strength I could muster, unraveling that towel from my bloody hand, I grabbed the handles of that rake, and I swatted it across his thin, wispy body. I raked him from end to end, rending him open in many, many cuts. His paper ripping and tearing and shredding. He let out a scream and stumbled back and fell. His body back to its six-foot-nine proportions and stuck, laying there writhing, bleeding, flipping and rolling and seizuring across the wood deck of the bridge. So close to his portal, yet he was trapped. Trapped. He looked at me and he said, Oh, you'll pay. It sounded like, Oh, you'll pay. He had a look of evil upon his face. The cuts across his entire body laced him like a barber's pole, red and white, all the way up and down his body. He was shrunk up now, and I could see where I had struck him starting with his face and working halfway down his chest. He reached down to his side, and I saw the holes from the pitchfork. I saw those holes. Oh, he'd never healed from that. He'd never healed. So you can die here, can't you, Stretch? You're not so strong here, are you? The anger left his face. He saw me looking at the marks upon his ribs. The farmer had left over a hundred years ago. He grasped and covered them up with his hand and stood up. He let out a hiss like a reptile and turned to run off the bridge. He was hurt. He was moving slow to the other end of the bridge and it was getting dark barely see him. My son ran up and hit him with a flashlight, the light of the flashlight striking his body. He was almost to the other side of the bridge, and in that he would escape back into the woods, into the darkness. He would get away. Right then, at the other entrance to the bridge, my assistant 
stepped in with a kerosene glass lantern from inside the house. She stood there and said, You hurt my child. You hurt my child, you son of a bitch. And she threw that kerosene lamp towards him. It shattered across the dry wooden timbers of the bridge and scattered kerosene all along the boards. The ancient wooden structure started to go up immediately. It was amazing. The bridge was a fire trap. Stretch silhouetted with the fire blocking his exit, me blocking the other. He turned. He started to come back towards me, stretching out more and more. Let me go. It sounded like, let me go. I stood my ground. My son, showing his first signs of adulthood and bravery, put the light right in his eyes and blinded him, the flames licking up around the sides. He stretched more and more and more until he was paper thin. Suddenly the fire on the other side of the bridge caught up to his thin, wispy form, and he burst into flames. He burst into flames like a piece of newspaper floating in the air, and he exploded into flames. Then all that was left was ashes. We stood there, trapped on the far side of the bridge, as the fire department came. We couldn't get over to the other side. There was no escaping the fact we had burned down a historic covered bridge. The fire department was angry with us, of course, and the police came and said it was an accident. My assistant had accidentally dropped the kerosene lantern. I showed them my credentials and they said I had to come in for questioning. It took a long time to unravel the legal part of my trip. My assistant was quite helpful. The police actually felt sorry for her and she told her story. We left out the part about Stretch. They probably wouldn't believe us anyway. <laughs> I don't know what... I'm more bothered by the fact that we don't know where or what or how Stretch came to be. Or how much the government had to pay to rebuild that bridge. The restoration project must have cost a fortune. But I am totally insured because wherever I go, there's always the disaster that follows, even on a vacation. That's the benefit and the curse of being Dr. Andrew Michaels. I might be here to help you, but uh, I have to be bonded for times like these. <laughs> it's always good to keep the insurance paid. Thank you.
You made it through the first mile? Well done. Thank you for getting it back in the box. I'll get it out of your way here and be right back with the next mile. strange cryptid, a humanoid-like creature. Maybe he was a man. Maybe he was just a strange man that went by the moniker of Stretch. He had been tormenting an area for well over a hundred years, and he was always the strangest of peeping toms. He got caught many times trying to frighten, expose himself to women and children, frightening them in the middle of the night, laughing at them, mocking them. He was a strange character, six foot nine, nude, head to toe, a frightening image in your bedroom at night, screaming and shaking his arms, frightening you, rattling your bed, tormenting you. I never thought I would run into this character, and I was with my family and co-workers on a small retreat, and we ran into him. It climaxed with us cornering him on a covered bridge. The bridge itself blocking his escape in many directions, and my assistant blocking one entrance with a glass kerosene lamp. I blocked the other entrance with a flashlight and a garden rake. Eventually, he caught fire from the lamp. The bridge itself nearly burned down and had to be restored. We thought that was where the story ended, and we all went back to Chicago to the Department of Navy Special Services and just continued in our routine daily lives. About three months after that trip, I got a strange visit from Chicago PD they wanted me to come down to their office right away. The chief wanted to talk to me inside the precinct house. It was not something we could discuss openly in my office or among my co-workers. They sent a car for me, and I obliged. After all, the city of Chicago has always been very gracious to us, opening up their city to our strange department that investigates every odd thing that can possibly happen in the United States and abroad. They've had to put up with a lot of problems over the years, and today was no different. They took me into the office, and they told me that they had a serial killer on the loose. This serial killer was targeting middle-aged women. Some of them were killed in their bedrooms, some of them were killed in their cars, their vans. It always seemed to happen around when they dropped the children off for school. The woman was alone. 
and she would be found with singe marks, minor burns around the neck, different parts of her body. Some of her clothing had been burned. The inside of the car would have burn marks, yet the entire car itself was not burned. And the women didn't die from fire. They died from suffocation. Almost every woman looked like she was being strangled or was in the attempt of being strangled, but they expired from being suffocated, a lack of oxygen in the room. Something had enveloped the area around the woman. One woman died in her bed, and there were some singe marks on the sheets and the comforter and on her clothing. But the strangest thing was it was like somebody put a plastic bag over the bed, burned a small fire inside the bag, took all the oxygen out, strangled her, and she suffocated. And then they removed the bag. The fire extinguished. There was no signs that the fire was retarded, that somebody had used some kind of chemical agent or water to stop the fire. It just went out along with her suffocating. So whatever took the oxygen out of the room to impede the fire and the spread of it also killed the woman. And it wasn't a direct, it was not an accident. It was a direct attempt to kill her. There were burn marks and bruises and strangulation marks around the woman's neck. Most of the women fought back. They struggled. They had taken samples and they passed them on to my lab. I was asking if I could see the results of that, and they said they hadn't been in yet, and they would be glad to forward them to us for our own investigation and our own analysis. I said, well, this all sounds interesting. Why am I here? Besides the fact the case is strange, why exactly am I here? They said, this is why, and they walked over to a small chalkboard that it was covered with paper. And they lifted the paper up over the top of the chalkboard, and I realized why I was asked to attend this meeting. All the ladies looked very much like my executive assistant. They had a map right beside the pictures of the female victims. And it was an area around the offices that I worked in. Whoever this was was targeting women leaving my office and women that looked just like my co-worker, my assistant. I took one look at all the evidence. I took it all in. I shook my head and I saw that uh, there was pretty angry looks my way. I had brought a murderer to town. 
never your responsibility if somebody else kills somebody. It's, you can't stop them. But I felt responsibility weighing me down immediately. Somehow I caused this. I screwed up. I got busy going over the files, going over the street addresses, talking to every officer that did a report, making sure if there were any eyewitnesses or who discovered the body, who did you talk to, what did they see, what, 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 was, what, was, what was going on around the scene. And there was nothing, no witnesses, no nothing. One witness saw what looked like the one car, a van, was on fire from the inside out. So he went in to report the fire on his phone. He came back out. The car was just a smoldering mess. He approached it and found the woman dead. There was no signs of entry or broken windows or any other problem with the car. He tried to revive the woman, pulling her out, pushing her body away from the car, and then trying to do CPR. He failed in his attempt, but he might have given us a clue. The car was not locked. The woman had just gotten in. She had literally died with the keys of her car around the ring of her finger. She had scratched up her assailant with those keys. That might give us our best evidence possible. She died with ashes on her lips, ashes in her mouth. Whatever this thing was that killed her, she had fought violently. The fight had extended to the point where she things had burned far enough along that there was ashes in the air and she breathed them in. They got caught up in her mouth, in her clothing, her covered, clothing covered in a black soot. But the lining of the car was the one thing. It did have burn damage, but not a lot. It was almost like somebody filled the car up with a balloon and then took it out. The police had an idea. A minivan, a female officer that looked a lot like my assistant, and two diminutive police officers that they used for drug raids, and they looked young. They could pretend to be young men wanting to buy drugs. They would have them in the back seat. Maybe they could lure this person in. He seemed to be always looking around schoolyards, so if it looked like a woman dropping off her kids, maybe he would go for it. I said, under no circumstances can this happen unless she has a way of getting out of the car, windows down, popping the windows, something because whatever's causing this fire it doesn't take long for the woman to suffocate so she has to be able to react quickly so automatic windows that could would go down instantly at the press of a button helped soothe my concerns she would at least have oxygen feeding into the car if that would help the, her case and, of course, she would have 
an officer tucked down in the back of the van, behind the seats, two sitting up behind her, looking like children. It might work. This sting operation went on for two or three nights, to no avail. I was always parked in an alley with a couple of goons with me, the biggest officers the department could provide. They smelled awful. Their body flatulence was just unbelievable in the car we were sitting in. They ate copious amounts of donuts and fast food and drank coffee one glass after another, and it just smelled so awful. They thought it was funny to relieve themselves in the street of the alley. I really wasn't in the mood. They thought there was something wrong with me because I didn't want to just pal around and be one of the guys, but I just wasn't in the mood for some locker room banner. I guess I am getting a little bit fidgety in my old age. I didn't want to sit in a car all night waiting for this to happen, waiting for somebody to get hurt because of what I had done or not done. So instead of relieving myself in the alley like a good boy, I was going to be a gentleman and walk up to the donut shop further along up the street. I made it about halfway there when the attack came in. The officers pulled up beside me. Get in, get in, just get in. I, of course, did what they commanded and jumped into the car. They pulled out before I even got the door shut. We were on our way to the scene. She had been attacked. Whatever it was, attacked. We got there. The car was a smoldering, burning wreck. The female officer was on her hands and knees. She was alive. She was okay. But she had taken some damage. She was coughing and obviously had thrown up the contents of her stomach. The two officers in the back seat were also alive. Weapons still drawn. Panic struck. The officer curled up in the back of the van. Must have seen the worst of it. He was laying on the street. His clothes tattered, burned in spots. He looked a right mess, and he also was unconscious. It was a horrible scene. Whatever this was, stumbled into a car with four officers in it, fought them, and escaped. I knew that without even being told at the scene what had happened. As I walked up, everything was explained, every movement, every action, some large humanoid thing slipped right through the crack of the door like a piece of paper like a snake scrawling up between the crack of the door how it fit through they couldn't figure out it blew up into the side of the van like a balloon filling the entire area the female officer was quick enough to lower the windows which only made things worse as the thing expanded into the area everything caught on fire the whole car enveloped in flames. It was like being inside a burning helium balloon. They opened up the car doors and stumbled out every which direction. The officer in the back couldn't reach the pull lever to get out the back and took the worst of it. Shots were fired to no avail. Whatever this thing was, this humanoid shape covered in flames, screaming, squelching, yelling, 
It left the van out one of the open windows, and the back latch was then opened, and the officer pulled out. He was unconscious with, and barely alive. He couldn't escape and almost suffocated in the tight confinement of the inside of the vehicle. It was clear now what had happened. Whatever this thing was, it would enter in the seam of a car door, enter into the seam of the trunk, ride home with you, enter through the seam of a window. We were dealing with Stretch. We were dealing with Stretch, but he was on fire. When he used his powers, he would burst into flames before he could react and commit to revenge on his human victim. He would suffocate then, his powers out of control, swelling and swelling until it filled up the whole area. It was clear to me now who we were dealing with and what we were dealing with. The officers assured me they had fired several rounds into the creature, and they did repel him, but it didn't look like they killed him. They said he became normal, corporeal. The smoke and the flames vanished, and he was a normal human being with hair and everything, but still nude. He ran away down the street. They followed. He got close to a building and just disappeared. I told them, well, with the powers that he has, he might have jumped down into a sewer drain. He might have hid behind a door somewhere in the building that he passed. He could have went anywhere. Did you search the building? Yes. Was he there? No. Was there a sewer drain nearby? Yes. Did you check it? No. Upon checking the sewer drain, there were slight little bits of ash on the ladder of the sewer entrance. We had our exit route. Well, he's long gone now. There's nothing we could do except care for the victims and try to figure this out. I had an officer go with me into the building that he had walked by. I said, it's, it's quite possible he could have went in there even though he went down the sewer. Maybe he's watching us. So let's go to the roof and look around. Maybe we can see him somewhere down below. So he took searchlights up to the roof of the building and searched all around. Nothing. Wherever he had went, he wasn't anywhere close to where we were. It's frustrating, but this is how normally things go. I told the officers the only thing I could think of is I want to go back to my office. I have an idea. I might have something that can help me capture him. So if the officers that had been on a stakeout with me could accompany me back to my offices, I would like them to go up and help me carry something down from my office. It's kind of large. I think it might fit in their trunk. They agreed. And we took a police van just in case, and the two officers went along with me in their car. They accompanied me to the Department of Navy Special Services, and I used my pass key to get in, took all the policemen with me, and we went up to my office. I fiddled with some paperwork and told them I'll get right to it, and I gave them a 
strange-looking device on a desk, and I said, please take that down and put it in the van. It was heavy enough for two men to carry. I thought that would keep them busy for a few minutes while I worked out the rest of my plan. You see, I told you earlier in last episode, sometimes I can see things. I can't unsee them. Once I'm made aware of something, I can't unsee it. Whether it's evil, supernatural, or extraterrestrial, my eyes won't let me not see it. And I saw Stretch entering the car that I had traveled in. He slipped right between the officers, up out of the sewer drain that was right near my car, slithered right along the ground like a snake, like a ghost, like a spirit with no body. Smoldering as he was, it gave away a slow glow, and everybody missed it. It was only for a second. As he slides across the ground, he entered the crack between the edges of the trunk space. He was in my car. Why didn't I say something then? I needed to get him as far away from everyone as I possibly could. I had a plan. If I was right, it would prevent a lot of deaths. And it would also give me a chance to get him to talk. I needed to know where he came from, what he was up to. I needed to know what he was about. And I couldn't do that in a gunfight in the middle of the street after four officers were hurt. I had to get him away from everyone first. I heard a little noise behind me. A little... Laugh. Or a drawl. Or just somebody breathing in the hiss of some ancient serpent waiting to be noticed in the bushes. I turned and said, I'm sorry. Whatever happened back in Ohio, I'm sorry. I'm sorry my assistant did that. I'm sorry I did that to you. Do you want to talk? Before me was a six-foot-nine man smoldering slightly, wanting to envelop me in the room, but holding himself back. The anger in his face was visible. He was furious. He wanted to kill me. My apology caught him off guard. The fact that I didn't fight back, I just turned around. In fact, I undid my weapons and laid them on my desk and sat down folded my arms. I'm serious. I think we should talk. He looked at me and he tried to speak. I could feel the words more than I could hear the words. He was a scientist in the 19th century. He was trying to invent an invisibility potion. 
He had read the book, The Invisible Man, and thought it was possible to do such a thing. He was using different isotopes, chemicals, elixirs, trying to find the perfect one to turn his body translucent. When he realized he had failed, he had turned himself into a literal Indian rubber man, someone who could fit through cracks and doors, stretch his body into contorted shapes that were impossible to imagine. He could flatten himself out like a piece of paper, like a carpet in a room. He could make himself very thin, small, and wiry, or very large, very big, fill up the volume of a room like a balloon. It amazed him, but there was a drawback. He had to be totally nude. When he would stretch and contort, his clothes would rip and tear off his body anyway. They didn't have his powers, so they didn't work. He decided to indulge himself like the man in the Invisible Man book did. And spy on women, spy on young ladies, take his perversion out on everyone around him. It was exhilarating to have control over victims, frighten them, scare them. He always got away. Nobody could capture him. Nobody could follow him. He, he was so fast, so quick. He could travel across the ground quicker than a normal man. He felt like there was power curse coursing through him like a god. Until that night, that farmer attacked him, stabbed him with that pitchfork, put holes in his body. It hurt him. It made him weak. It seemed his body didn't like to heal. Whenever he got wounded, it just lingered. It just stuck with him. When I raked him with the yard rake, near the end of my battle with him, he was furious. It was like somebody had just ripped the skin from his body. And it wouldn't heal. I could still see the marks all over him. And then she torched him. My assistant broke the lamp and caused a fire. The fire caught him on the legs and engulfed his whole body in flames. We thought he burned up, but in reality he just popped back into a normal shape and fell through the cracks of the bridge that had burned. We didn't see that he had fallen into the water below, that he had drifted down the river, put out by the water. He was miserable, burnt, hurt, harmed, beyond repair. Every time he used his powers, he would flame up like a candle. The chemicals, the elixirs that drove through his body, acted like a wick, feeding the flames. He couldn't shut them off. Nothing worked. He could douse himself in water, which weakened him, which allowed his powers to ebb. It seemed to wash the powers out of his body for a very short time, and he could be normal a little, normal sometimes. But once he dried out, and once he used his powers again, the flames would wick back up again. He was eternally a flaming candle and he was furious he couldn't sneak in the houses anymore he would catch things on fire he could 
He couldn't do it anymore. He couldn't enjoy his perversion any further. People would see him. He glowed like a will of a wisp And everybody could see him from miles away until he turned his powers off, doused himself with a little bit of water. That's why he would always go down into the sewers to get himself wet. He stunk so terribly from this process. He'd been in Chicago for a while and he was covered in fecal matter and sewage. He was furious with me. He wanted to kill me and just get it over with. I told him there might be a way for me to help him. There might be a way for me to cure him. He said, no, the only thing he wanted to do is is exact his revenge and kill me and then kill my assistant. Kill her whole family and mine. I told him I can't allow that. And he laughed at me. He said, what are you going to do? I'll fill this whole room up my body and suffocate you right out. My hands around your neck while you die, watching the life come out of your body and into my hands. I will see you dead, Dr. Andrew Michaels, was the last thing he said as he started to expand, as he expand his, expanded his voice box, his lungs. The words forming from his lips didn't work anymore. It turned into jibber-jabbering nonsensical sounds. He expanded, and as he did, the flames started to erupt from his body. I didn't move an inch. I wasn't scared of him at all, even as his hands approached my face. I reached up. Just in the nick of time, I grabbed his stretched-out wrists before they went around my neck. He couldn't understand me trying to hold on to him, flaming up as he was, and that's when he realized... I had set a trap for him. Right in that second, the sprinkler system above him burst into action. The room completely covered in water. His powers, his powers erased. He shrank back down to a normal man, me holding him by the wrists. Oh, he was strong, strong for a man of six foot nine. But with his powers ebbing, he became weak very weak, and he fell to the floor, flattened out like a puddle in the water pooling on the ground. He laid there, gasping, trying to get out of the water, weakened from being hit by water twice in one night. I walked over and found a piece of cardboard from a packing box and I scraped him up into a pile. I rolled him through the water up into a ball, and I shoved him down into the top of a half-used five-gallon water jug for the water cooler. Then I found a cap for the water cooler, and I jammed it on top. He was sloshing around in there like an oversized goldfish. Furious, thrashing, tapping the plastic edges of the water bottle, completely trapped, weakened, unable to escape. Water would seep into the pores of his body, extinguish his powers, make him useless, weak, tired. 
couldn't move. He was immobile. All he could do was gasp for air. Through the top of the jug was a small hole for air. I jammed a straw into it so that I knew he had access to fresh air. Eventually he might be able to escape, but not tonight. The water shut off when the fire department showed up. They turned off the alarms and reset the system. The police who had came eventually showed up. The alarm brought them running very quickly. I said, there's your murderer. He's in that jug. One officer took one look at the messy, messy-looking human inside. It didn't even look real. It looked like some kind of human birth gone wrong. One glance at it, and the officer trained and someone experienced as himself. I was surprised to see him throw up. Maybe it was the bad donuts he had ate that night, but it was disgusting to see. I told them I had some holding cells that could help me get him to them. I would greatly appreciate it. We had to make sure that while we transported him, we folded over the top of the straw so that he didn't escape out the top. The officers obliged and helped me carry him to our holding cell area. There we put him in a stasis cube, somewhere where he couldn't escape. And in that moment I dumped out the contents of the jug onto the ground. He sloshed all over the floor into a puddle. I left him there in the water, some towels to dry himself off, and I walked outside and reset the stasis of the holding cell. Stretch, you better get used to this room. You're going to be here for a while. Don't worry, you're going to be afforded all the rights of anybody else charged with a crime. We'll get you an attorney and you'll have a fair trial. We'll let you rest until you get yourself back to normal. I do suggest you don't try to escape. The only thing you're going to do is knock yourself out. There's no way out of this energy stasis. He couldn't talk. He couldn't speak at all. Several days went by before he was able to talk. And when he was, I went to see him. He refused to speak with me. He refused to speak to his attorney. They said every night he tried to get out. And every night he failed. But he was probing, constantly probing the room. It was like watching a snake tapping the glass of an aquarium. I started to leave, and I heard him speak. He said it is just like a snake tapping the glass of an aquarium. Dr. Andrew Michaels. He was in my mind. We're not done with this yet, he said. You and I, we are not done with this yet. How are things going? No problems so far? Fantastic. 
let me get the final file out of the archive for you. Good morning. It's so good to see you today. I know it's been a long time since we've talked about any kind of cryptid creatures. And I have one that's <laughs> very unusual today. And there's sadly some history behind it. And I'm not sure if some people are going to be happy with this. Because, in a way... <laughs> We helped create this monster. There was once... Oh, I don't even know how to begin. There was a time when we as a company would take all of our families out for little mini vacations to, I don't know, just, they were group vacations and they were meant to be bonding exercises for us and our families, kind of like a family support group so that, you know, if anything happened to us or if anything needed explained to us, you already knew the players involved. Dealing with top secret information like cryptids and, you know, aliens and all the other things Dr. Andrew Michaels and the Department of Navy Special Services gets up to. Yes, it's quite ugly at times. And it was nice just to get our families away sometimes where we could all talk and our kids could play and the wives and husbands could open up and talk to somebody that kind of knew what they were going through, you know? And it was nice. And they were usually short little four-day weekends, you know, like maybe going to some cabins or a water park or, you know, um, two days at the zoo, you know, with all kinds of special stuff we were going to do. and Or like going to, you know, like... um Kennedy Space Center in Florida, something you could do in a couple, two or three days and just hit the beach with the kids and then get back home. And one trip we took, we ran into a cryptid that could flatten itself against walls. He could literally hide in the crease in the crack of a door jam and he had to be stark naked to do it and I talked about him in earlier stories my receptionist and I were at a cabin with several other families and we discovered this strange cryptid he was basically human 
but had lived a long, long life as a weird, strange, peeping Tom, able to literally slide between the cracks in windows, the cracks in the closed door, and get into the cabins, and he would spy on the people staying there, and it was quite disturbing and very weird, and discovering him did not go well, because we had our families with us and the children, and he was, of course, stark raving nude. That didn't help, and he ended up being captured in a most um, violent way. He got torched by a lantern on a wooden bridge. Luckily, we saved the bridge and him, but um, the damage was still done. He was harmed and very angry and out for revenge. What we didn't know at the time when we locked him up was that this ancient, strange, weird creature had sired a child. That's right. And yes, she had inherited his powers in a similar way. Now she wasn't just like him. Her powers were different. And this is the story of her seeking revenge on us. We joked about the trip that we took to the cabins that fateful weekend and how everything had gone wrong. We would always laugh about it and talk about it around the water cooler and lunch as a learning experience, running into a very strange and creepy cryptid. (laughs) When we were supposed to be enjoying our families and relaxing and being on vacation, it was quite an experience, I will tell you. And we never really forgot it. I think that's what drove us to plan another four-day weekend at those cabins. We wanted to go there and really enjoy the country and the nature, the leaves changing color, take photos, the nice scenic walks and drives, all the local waterfalls and the covered wooden bridge. We just wanted to really go back there and see all the things we missed because we cut our trip so short when we ran into that creature the last time. Our kids were older and they all kind of knew each other well. And we hadn't really taken a nature hiking trip in a long time. We'd done everything but that. And it just seemed like a good fit for the group. So, I scheduled it on a nice Thanksgiving four-day weekend, and uh, 
we planned on going there and just having the time of our lives and enjoying the Thanksgiving holiday. Now, this just happened, so it's very fresh in my mind. It was a, well, it wasn't a learning experience. It was quite macabre and quite frightening. And things didn't turn out the way they did last time. Oh, because someone was waiting for us to return. We found our cabins and we all took our rooms, unpacked our belongings, and got ready for the evening's events. We arrived in time for Thanksgiving and had a wonderful dinner. It was very typical turkey, stuffing, gravy, and all the fixings. Everybody was bloated and full of pie, and we were all trying to relax around a nice, warm fire. My receptionist and her family were there, as well as another family that worked with us at the Department of Navy Special Services. And we were all having a great time watching Elf and the new Christmas Story Christmas movie and just having a laugh. And I was very tired. And I told my wife I wanted to go to bed. Everybody was free to do whatever they wanted, but hey, Dr. Andrew Michaels is tired of helping people today. I'm going to help myself to a nice winter nap. We had gotten to the cabin a little later in the year than we wanted to go. The leaves were pretty much down and it had snowed a little bit. The snow was wonderful and you could see the tracks of deer and squirrels and birds in the snow as we unpacked our belongings and took our rooms in the cabin. It was really, really wonderful, and it just felt so Christmassy and the holiday season, and I wish I would have shared this earlier in the year with you before, but I wasn't able to speak about it until now. There was a lot of ruckus and noise in the large open living space. So I told my wife I was just going to shut the door and put on a noise machine and a fan and I would have no problem sleeping and they could just have as much fun as they wanted, don't worry about me. And I did just that. I lied, I laid down in the bed and I turned on my noise machine and turned it up and turned the ceiling fan on so it made a little bit of noise. And I was like barely even laying down in bed, didn't even pull the blankets down, and I fell asleep right there on top of the blankets with my shoes still on and everything. Oh my God. I was out cold. I'll admit it. What a goofy guy sleeping that quickly. Well, of course, everybody else went to bed eventually, 
and my wife joined me in the bedroom and she closed the door for privacy's sake but in her getting ready for bed and changing and finishing unpacking and everything else she woke me up I tried to go back to sleep but I couldn't and it was no big deal I was kind of a night owl so I thought about getting up and then I thought well if I get up I'm just gonna be up for hours and then I'm gonna be sleeping all morning when everybody's getting ready for breakfast and the day's events so look I'm just gonna lay here until I fall asleep again so I sat up kicked my shoes off and uh, took my pants off and pulled the blankets down and started getting ready to get in bed when I heard a noise the tiniest of noises a click of my door somebody was at my door my door had clicked and cracked open I knew my door was cracked open I turned it was closed but I heard it and I thought you're jumpy you're tired it's late you just somebody might have thought they were at your room and they they came to the wrong door but something caught my eye and my attention there was no light so they must have just jiggled the door handle and realized oh there's they're at the wrong room because the light from the hallway didn't come through so I thought you know hey no big deal don't worry about it they left the hall light on so the kids could get up and everybody else can find the bathroom and nobody would trip over anything being an odd environment you know some place they really didn't know well so I laid down and I pulled the blankets over me and I tried to sleep I think about 15 or 20 minutes went by when I heard that same click clack of my door opening up I turned and looked it was cracked just a tiny bit but no light was coming through I sat up and looked right at the crack of the door and I swore I saw a single solitary eye looking in at me through that crack in the door my eyes were adjusting to the darkness and all of a sudden I realized the door drifted quietly shut they were holding the doorknob all the way over so that the latch was was pulled into the door frame or into the door so it wouldn't strike the door then they were slowly released the door handle somebody was at my door but I didn't see anything there was no light silhouetting them from behind I quietly 
slid out from under the blankets and got up. I was very stiff. I had slept for quite a long time at this point. So I was a little hunched over and I had to stretch and move. Sure as hell, my door cracked open again. You could hear it. There was a telltale clack when they turned the doorknob for the first time. And that door opened back up. No light came through, but there was somebody there. They obviously saw that I was up. The door handle went limp. The light from the outside came in and the door drifted open. I walked out to look out in the hallway and there was no one there. Hmm. I'm up now. Nobody here. The door, maybe, you know what? It's a draft. That's what I thought. There's a draft and the door is opening and closing from people opening and closing their doors shutting the bathroom door too fast, the fan from the bathroom is pulling it open, shutting it when they turn the fan off, it's closing, who knows. Okay, there might be a draft from outside. That happens in these old cabins. I stepped out of the bedroom, closed the door behind me quietly, and then went down the hall to the shared restroom and relieved myself because... You know, as you get older, that <laughs> it's no big deal. Men have to relieve themselves every hour, it feels like, but it's not that bad. And, you know, I checked all the doors and looked around, and when I was satisfied my dad duties were done, I went back down the hall and closed the door and got back in bed. Everything's all right. But something was nagging at me, and I know what it was. I had that weird feeling of something just wasn't right. And, I don't know, you get a knack for this when you're my age, when you've been in the business as long. You sit there and you look at your watch, and you time it out. You wait about another 20 minutes and this time I get up and I walk over and I check the door my door was closed I open it click very gently that little click clack and I look out in the hallway I just peek you know how you look just through the very of the door and when I crack the door and I open it up just that wee little bit I saw a narrow faced woman turning putting her eye right at my level I had interrupted her she was looking right at me our eyes met I was hunched over shocked and I pulled the door open oh my god what was this she turned all in stark black black 
long dress all the way to the ground and long sleeves. She looked like a funeral gown and black gloves and long, long, dirty, greasy, black hair. Her face was so narrow, it looked like it could fit through the crack of the door. Her face swelled back out to a normal shape. She'd sucked in a breath and in panic, mumbling, turned and raced for the door. Before I could act, before I could even think, she was out the door of our cabin, leaving the door wide open into the snow. I was shocked. She looked like she glided across the floor. I never heard a click of her heels or her shoes, and I saw her race out into the dark. I must have been startled beyond belief. I grabbed my cell phone, turned on the flashlight app on the back of it, and brought up my camera, hoping I could snap a photo of her, and I raced over to the door. She was long gone. I almost fell right on my ass in the new snow that was all over the porch. I saw that she did leave a smear of snow from her dress and as she launched herself across the steps into the grass you could see where her dress struck like a poof on the new fresh cold dry snow there were footprints where she landed and then she hiked her dress because it quit dragging and you could see her too dainty feet running away in the snow. I'm standing there in my bare feet in the snow, freezing my ass off, snapping quick photos. When a couple other adults came to the door, the receptionist, her husband, and my wife all came to the door. What in the world are you doing? They were very upset. I told them not to worry. Everything's okay. They're gone. (laughs) They are gone? Who's they? What's they? My wife was not happy at all. She asked me, did you lock the door? Was the door locked? I go, look, 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 just stop. Just stop. Let's all go inside. I'm freaking freezing. My feet are icy cold. And I walked back to my bedroom, got my shoes on and coat and a proper strong flashlight from my car, armed myself with my service revolver and went out into the snow, being careful not to step on the tracks and walking out to try to figure out where she went or if she was nearby. Now this is the scary part at least to me. Dumbass, Dr. Andrew Michaels, alone, in the dark. Everybody's sitting in the living room, completely mad at me, because I'm going out by myself, 
and all I have is a couple of porch lights on and a flashlight and my cell phone and my service revolver and it's cold as hell but I'm going to at least go out and see where I could tell in the snow where she went before the tracks get covered by the snow that was just kind of drizzling down it was a dry snow so one good gust of wind would destroy her tracks her feet were dainty not the size of a doll and not the size of a deer's hoof print but somewhere in between you could tell it was a shoe a heel like a granny boot a thicker heel on the back and then a strong base but a small tiny tiny shoe and you could tell she was in a hurry taking long strides like she was racing along on top of the snow as fast as she could run I followed her tracks out to the edge of the field that was in the front of the cabin to a tree she was hiding behind a tree at one point she was watching what we were going to do next then she left her spot behind the tree and continued towards the woods behind the cabin so I had come out of the front walked over to some random trees in the front yard found out she was hiding there but when she realized I was coming out she left and went towards the trees tree line that would be about a 45 degree angle heading behind the house I followed the tracks for a while and the snow was getting worse and worse and I was losing the tracks her feet were so small you could barely see them they were like little pegs almost like she was running on dowel rods until finally I couldn't see her footprints anymore I got close to the tree line shined the light back and forth and caught the eyes of a hidden deer and her baby fawn in the woods but nothing more and believe me I was shocked when I saw those eyes glowing back at me <laughs> she was scared too she ditched me her feet kept getting smaller and smaller and lighter and lighter until she left no tracks at all I've never seen anything like it so I'm done here I'm frozen I barely have a jacket on and I'm walking around in my shoes <laughs> that I wore there not boots and my feet are soaking wet and I'm icy cold I turn around and cross the track that she left and start walking straight back to the house I had that nagging feeling though and every five to ten steps I would stop and scan around me scan all the way around 180 degrees then I would start walking back towards the cabin, scanning the 180 
in front of me to make sure she didn't surprise me coming from a different direction. I repeated this process three times and I got to the back of the house. And that's when I saw her. The hair on my neck is standing up right now. Just thinking about that moment. I came up to the corner of the house and there was a downspout. As I walked past the corner of the house, I shot my light down the back side of the house, the side I wasn't going to go down. And then I turned and the light came back and crossed over the downspout, and I flashed up the side of the house. And that's when my light caught her eye for a split second. She had wedged herself and hid right there in the space between the downspout in the house and was looking right at me, thin as a line drawn on a paper, her arms above her head, her legs pulled in tight and narrow like a ribbon. The only thing my light caught was the smallest glint off her eyes, and I had enough composure to continue pulling my light forward, so she knew she hadn't been spotted just yet. I can feel the goosebumps going up my legs right now, up my back. as I tell you what I did next. And I assure you, it wasn't the reaction I expected, but I certainly got what I deserved. As I said, I drug my light down the side of the building, past the downspout, and down the side of the house I was going to travel I kept my composure. I did not let on I saw her. Then I swung my light quickly, pulled up my cell phone camera with the flash ready, the light on my phone on, and I wrapped that metal downspout with the back side of my long, big flashlight. And I mean, I banged it like a gong and she jumped. She jumped out like the devil from that crack behind the downspout, that space between the downspout and the house. 
she leaped out right in front of me, puffed up big, puffed up strong, took both of her hands and landed them on my shoulders. Her face was inches from my face, and she screamed. She screamed so loud that she was caught, that I dared, dared hurt her, frighten her, scare her, attack her. She screamed, and it was like a thousand devils, a thousand demons' voices in my head. And I stumbled back using a quick maneuver. I ripped loose from her. Her nails slid across my jacket, scraping, snagging the fabric of my windbreaker. I flashed the light in front of me, took a quick photo or two. I don't know what I did at the moment, but I knew I was running on auto. I swung back and forth. Keep your distance. Don't touch me. And before anything was done, the house, all the lights came on. Everybody started pouring out of the house from every doorway. The window down the side of the house flashed up and open. The curtain blowing out of the house as my wife stuck her head out. What did you do now? What was that? I was going around and around in a circle, looking everywhere. Where was she? She's gone. She's gone. She's gone. And she was. I caught her at the edge of my flashlight in the snow, stretching, growing. She must have been ninety feet tall, reaching up, grabbing the top of a snow-covered pine, pulling herself up like some kind of creature out of mythology, one hand stretching all the way up to the top of a tree, and then pulling her dainty body up, 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 up to the top of the tree, and then she ran into the darkness across the tops of the branches, never to be seen. Are you all finished? That was a long day of researching. Yes, it would be good to start on your report while the information is fresh in your mind. Let me know if you need to come back and review anything before you submit your final report. Thank you. We will see you again soon, I'm sure. Thank you for joining us for ASMR Tirar de Huello. Please take a moment to share this podcast with someone who might enjoy it, and to rate or review it on your podcast player of choice. Those small things only take a few minutes, 
and they really do help our podcast grow. If you are interested in additional ASMR content, you may view our library of videos at youtube.com slash We have also started uploading earlier podcast episodes to YouTube. Another one goes up every Thursday night at youtube.com slash ASMR Links to connect with us on social media and to take a look at our merchandise can be found in the show notes. The theme song, Atlantis, is by Jason Shaw of Audionautics.com and is used by permission. Correspondence, including questions or requests, may be sent to tirardahuello at gmail.com. On behalf of Dr. Andrew Michaels and his entire staff, thank you.